0: Thank you so much for your presence tonight. Uh, many of you were here last night for our first session, probably most of you, and we're certainly grateful for that and thankful that you've come back to be with us again this evening as we continue uh, this study together of Family Life. We sought to introduce to you last night the design of marriage, and we talked about the fact that God designed that a man and a woman, the two, shall become one flesh. And we emphasize that there are a number of things that that teaches us. That number one, that God intended for marriage to be a heterosexual relation between a man and a woman, and not homosexual. Uh, We pointed out also uh, that God designed and that he intended that those two might become one. And when he said two, he obviously eliminated bigamy, he obviously eliminated polygamy, uh, marriage was designed, again, for one man and for one woman, and those two shall be united together as one flesh. And we pointed out that in order to enter that relationship, that a man and a woman have to leave their father and their mother. They have to leave the old relationship behind, that in-laws must not be allowed to interfere in the relationship of a man and a woman. And not only must they leave their father and mother, but they must cleave. They must cling and stick together to one another like glue. God intended for the relationship of marriage to be permanent. He intended for there to be, as we noted last night, no escape hatch. That whatever problems that you might have in your relationship, you must work them out. Because you must stick together like glue. And when we leave father and mother and commit ourselves to one another for life, then the two shall become one flesh, which simply means they may unite their bodies together and enjoy the relationship in which they can fulfill their fleshly desires one with the other. And we went ahead to point out also that in that relationship, God intended for there to be companionship between the husband and the wife. That man was alone without the woman, and God gave man the woman because he was lonely, and that she could be a help that would be suitable to fulfilling his desire for a companion and for one like to himself. And finally, we talked about the relationship of husband and wife. Uh, that the man is as the husband is to be the head of the wife, and that the wife is to be in subjection to her husband. And we noted to you, after discussing this design for marriage, that in the remaining sessions that we would have together, we would discuss, first of all, the husband's relationship to the wife, which we'll talk about this evening. And then on Sunday morning at the Bible class hour, we'll talk about the wife's relationship to her husband. And then we'll talk about the relationship as parents husband and wife, when they become mothers and fathers, the relationship that they have to their children, to train them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And then a final lesson tomorrow afternoon, we'll talk about, again, the permanency of marriage, the fact that there is no escape hatch, that marriage is for life, and that God has prohibited a man or a woman divorcing one another, with, of course, the exception, which we'll talk about, of Unfaithfulness to the one flesh relationship. But as we mentioned to you last night, we want to talk to the husbands this evening. And we're going to talk to the husbands about loving their wives as Christ loved the church, of loving their wives as they love their own bodies. I think all of us are well aware of the fact that marital death or divorce is rampant in this country of ours. Some have suggested that as high as 50% of the marriages that are uh, performed end in, in divorce. I've read other stats that say it's not quite that high, but we do know that divorce is very prominent in our society today. And we can just look next door, or we can look across the street, or we can often look into our own families, or into this church family right here, and we know of divorces that have occurred where people have indeed, for whatever reason, have ended their relationship together. And there have been lots of surveys that have been done, lots of questionnaires that have been sent out, a lot of studies that have been done to try to answer the question of why. What is the cause behind so much of the divorce that is rampant uh, in our society today? And, of course, we understand that there are a number of reasons. Sometimes one of the mate is unfaithful to the other. Sometimes there is physical abuse. Other times there are simply the joining together of two unprincipled people who do not understand what marriage is all about. And so there's no doubt many factors that enter into the fact that so many marriages are breaking down. But I believe, and it's my conviction that the main reason that marriages are breaking down is because of the lack of leadership in the relationship and any nation that comes apart any community that has problems it can almost almost always be traced back to the leadership of that nation or the leadership of that community or the leadership of that corporation Whatever it is that may be unsuccessful, you can usually trace it back to the lack of leadership. And I believe that this is true in marriage itself. I think if we could have good leaders in the marriage relationship, that many of the situations or the problems that arise would be eliminated, and many of our marriages would be successful. And we're going to see in our study tonight that the leadership in the marriage relationship is to be the husband. And in the latter part of the study, we're going to talk about husbands being the head of their wives as Christ is the head of the church. But there's something that comes before that. Before any man can be the head of his wife in a successful way, before any man can take charge of the marriage relationship, He has to learn another principle that God has been clear on, and that is that husbands are to love their wives even as Christ loved the church, that husbands are to love their wives even as they love themselves. And I believe if we can get men to understand that, I believe if we can get men to grasp and take a hold of that responsibility and take charge of their relationship, of their families, I believe if we can get men to do that and to do it out of love, I'm confident that we're going to solve almost all of the problems of divorce today. And so we're going to talk to the men this evening. We're going to talk to the husbands. And then we'll talk to the women tomorrow and then to the parents as well. But I think we need to begin our study by a definition of this word love. It's somewhat unfortunate in the English language that we use love in so many different ways, and yet we use that same word to describe, uh, say, my love for strawberries. I say I love strawberries, and I say I love my wife. Hopefully there's a difference in the love that I have for strawberries and the love that I have for my wife. And yet we do not distinguish in the English language what I mean by love of strawberries in distinction of what I mean when I talk about loving my wife. And so I want us, since the New Testament was written in Greek, I want us to go back to the Greek language for just a moment to talk about the word love in Greek that is behind the commandment of Paul in Ephesians 5 for husbands, to love their wives. And in doing so, I want us to understand that in the Greek language, there are four different words that convey the idea of love in the English language. I was telling the fellows at breakfast this morning, when we were talking about some of these things, that I'd read somewhere that the Eskimos have 27 different words for love. And it describes a variety of likes and interests and so forth, uh, in their relationships and their lives, uh, in general. But I want to take a look at the four Greek words that are translated love, and that are, that convey some aspect of love in, in, in the English language. And I want to begin with the word that is pronounced eros, E-R-O-S, and we get our English word erotic from that word. And eros would describe in the Greek language, it would describe, say for example, the lust and the desire that a man might have for a woman. And we know that to look upon a woman to lust after her, if she's not your wife, is sinful. But on the other hand, to look upon your wife and to lust after her is a legitimate kind of love. And Paul talks about it significantly in 1 Corinthians the 7th chapter. When he says that the man was made for the woman and the woman for the man. And that they should unite their bodies together as one flesh. And he says they ought not to defraud one another of that right. That when you purpose to leave your father and mother and to cleave unto your wife, you have every right to unite your body to her as one. And in doing so, it is perfectly legitimate, God made you that way, to have a lust and a desire for that relationship. And that in the Greek language we would call eros, and that in the biblical teaching is only a relationship that a husband can share with his wife. For a man to look upon a woman to lust after her who is not his wife, Jesus says, is adultery. It's adultery that is committed in the heart. It is to long for and to desire somebody that you have no right to. But when we say husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and love your wives as you do your own body, we're not talking about eros. But there's a second word that is used in the Greek language, and we sometimes call it philos. We get words like Philadelphia, brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. And this word philos is often in our English translations, it is often rendered friend. And this is a kind of love where you like somebody where you're a friend of somebody. And a man can be a legitimate friend of a woman if he just likes her and uh, understands a legitimate relationship with her. It can be a, a love that he has for another man in that they are friends. They like to hunt together. Or they like to fish together. Or they like to camp together. Things of that kind. And so philos is another form of love that we use in the English language when we talk about our friends, people that we really like, people that we enjoy being with, and things of that kind. But again, that's not the word that Paul used in Ephesians 5 when he said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But there's another word in the Greek language, and it would be pronounced storge. Storge. And storge is the kind of love that you have for your brother, or the kind of love that you have for your sister, the kind of love that you would have between siblings. It's a family love. It's, an, it's, a, it's to like one another in our own families. And again, of course, that's not the word that the Apostle Paul uses in the Ephesian letter. And so that leaves us the fourth Greek word that we need to understand and need to appreciate because it's the kind of love that God had for us. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's the kind of love that Jesus had for us, who loved us and laid down His life for us, as John would say in 1 John the 3rd chapter and verse 16. It's the devotion that God has for you and me and for the salvation of our souls. That God loves us. He is devoted to our well-being. He is devoted to our eternal interest and well-being. And this is the word that is used in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. And it describes the very love and devotion that God has for us. William Barclay, when he was defining this love, in one of his works he said that this is what we would call unconquerable benevolence or undefeatable goodwill. And what that means is that I have a benevolent spirit and attitude toward you. Let's say you're hungry. I'm devoted to your needs and would provide food for you. Let's say that you're thirsty, or that you need clothing. That I have a devotion to you and what your needs are. And what Barclay is saying, it must be a devotion that you cannot defeat. It must be a devotion that you cannot conquer. And what that means is that there's nothing you can do. You can slap me. You can knock me down. You can throw rocks through the window of my car or my house. And if you're hungry, I'm going to feed you because you cannot conquer the devotion and the goodwill that I have for you. Now, that's the kind of love that God had for us. And inherently, in the eternal and in the very nature of being God, There is nothing that we can do that will keep God from loving us and providing for us. Now, He may have to punish us. He may have to render judgment against us. But He has devoted Himself and provided for us, even when we violate His law, a means of forgiveness and a means of providing for our eternal well-being. And so what agape says is that I am devoted to you even if you're my enemy. This is the word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the fifth chapter. Toward the end of that chapter, he said to his disciples that you have to love your enemies. And you have to pray for those that persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. You have to love them. You have to be devoted to them. There's nothing they can do to defeat the goodwill that you have toward them. So that even as your enemy, if they are hungry, you're going to feed them, regardless of what they did to you. If if they're thirsty, you're going to give them something to drink. If they're naked, you're going to give them clothes to wear. Because you have agape, and you're devoted to their well-being. And that's the kind of love that Paul commands of husbands in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, where he says that we ought to love our wives as Christ loved the church, and that we ought to love our wives even as we love our own bodies. And so that's agape. And that's the love that Paul is talking about. That's the love that the New Testament is talking about when a scribe comes to Jesus and says to him, Lord, or Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the first commandment? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And there's a second one likened to it, to love your neighbor as yourself. What's interesting about this in Mark's account in the 12th chapter of Mark is that he uses a different word than Matthew does for all. There are two words in the Greek language that mean all or totality. There's one, "pos," and Matthew uses that word. But in Mark's account, in the twelfth chapter, he uses the word halos. H-O-L-O-S. Put a W on the front of it. It means whole. Totality. And that's the word that Mark uses when he records this conversation with Jesus. Is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart. With your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole strength. The totality of your being. You are to love God and love your neighbor. And what's interesting in Mark's account of this is that the scribe says, Ah, you are right. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole strength. And he says this is better than whole burnt offerings. You see the point and the implication that the scribe gets out of that? You see, under the Jewish law, they had what was called a continual, whole burnt offering. Every morning, they put an entire animal. Now, they had a lot of different sacrifices where they would uh, offer various parts of the animal. But every morning, they would put an entire animal on the altar sacrifice and burn up that whole animal All day long. And then at evening, they would put another animal on there, a whole animal, and it would burn all night long. That was called the continual whole burnt offering. And that's what the scribe got out of that conversation with Jesus. Oh, I get what you're saying. We have to give the totality of ourselves to you all the time. There's never any time out. There's never any time when we can be free to do our own will. We have to constantly do your will. Now that's the Word. And that's the love that we're talking about. When we say to husbands that you must love your wife, you must love her with your whole heart as you do God, as you do your neighbor. And you must love her, Husbands, as you do yourself. And as Christ has loved you. There's never a time when Christ didn't love us. And there's never a time when we must not love God and love our neighbors, and also to love our wives. And so that's the kind of love we're talking about when we say, Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Love your wife as you love your own body. Now, Think about then, in the second instance, think about the love of Christ for just a moment. Because that's the foundation or the example of the kind of love that we must have. Paul said in Ephesians 5, Be ye therefore imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love even as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for you as a sacrifice, as a sweet-smelling offering and odor that went up to God. Jesus Christ came to this earth for the very purpose of offering Himself as a sacrifice. came down to do the will of God, and that devotion that He had for us, there was no limit on it. He was willing not only to come down to this earth, but he was willing to go to the cross. And I try at times to really understand that kind of love. The love of a pure and divine being that would become a man and would suffer what Jesus suffered, to be beaten, to be scourged, to be mistreated in so many ways and then nailed to a cross and left there to hang and die. And he did that because he was devoted to me. And he was devoted to you. And there was nothing that would hinder him from offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. That was the service. You know, the disciples got in this big argument about who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they had discussed that on several occasions. That's mentioned several different times. And now a mother gets involved and says, Well now, now Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, would you would you put one of my sons on your right hand and one of my sons on your left hand? And the disciples have been discussing this and now this mother gets involved, and Jesus finally settles the issue and says, If you want to be great in my kingdom, then he says you're going to have to be a minister. And that simply means one who serves. If you're going to be number one in my kingdom, you're going to have to be a slave, a bondservant. And Jesus said, that's why I came to earth. I came to earth to minister, to serve, and to give my life a ransom for many, Matthew 20 and verse 28. And that's the love of Jesus. And that's the love that Paul is saying to us as husbands. That's the kind of love you must have for your wife. You must be devoted to her. You must be as a bond servant who would become her slave and, and become a servant on her behalf and, and her needs. You must have the kind of love that Jesus had for you, who gave himself up for you. Counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but had the mind To empty himself and take on the form of a slave and be fashioned like a man and humble himself unto death. Not just death, but the death on the cross, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. And so that's the agape. That's not the storge. That's not the philos. That's not the eros. That's the agape, the unconquerable goodwill. There was nothing that men could do to Jesus. There were no threats that they could make against him that would deter him from doing what you need and what I need, and that's the shedding of his blood that we might be redeemed of our sins. And so that brings us now to a discussion of our love. Our love for ourselves, men. First of all, he said that you love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, we've just seen how much Christ loved the church. He purchased it with his own blood, as Paul said in Acts 20, verse 28. But not only must you love your wife as Christ loved the church, but you must love your wife as you love yourself. And he goes ahead to say, What man does not nourish and cherish his own body and his own life and himself. And that's the kind of love that the Apostle Paul says you've got to have for your wife. You've got to cherish her. You've got to nourish her. You've got to treat her the way you would treat yourself. And that puts us in the position, men, of having to say, when our wives have need, that that puts us in the position of having to put her in the place, put ourselves in the place she's in, and say, what would I do for myself in that circumstance? What kind of a sacrifice would I make for my own well-being in this circumstance and in this situation? And when I do that, then I will understand, number one, that my love for my wife must be unlimited. I don't have any right to set boundaries out here and say, well, now I'll go this far, or I'll go this far, but I'm not going to go beyond that. The love that you have for yourself is unlimited when you have needs. And when you have circumstances, you do what it takes to meet that need. And you don't place limitations on that. And so you must not with your wife. Secondly, not only must it be unlimited, but it must be unending. You don't love your wife for the first ten years and then are free to do as you please. You don't love your wife for the first twenty-five years and then say, okay, I gave you 25 years of my life, now I'm going to do what I want to do. Marriage doesn't work that way. It's an unending love. It goes on and on until death do we part. The bond or the boundaries of death are until, or of marriage are until one, either the husband or the wife dies. And not only is it unlimited and unending, but it must be unselfish. And that means I must not let myself get in the way of meeting her needs and providing for her in whatever way. It must be indeed an unselfish. That's what you have with Jesus. Gave up himself for our sins and offered himself as a redeemer, that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. That means, therefore, that I have to honor my wife. I have to honor her, as the Apostle Peter said in the third chapter in verse 7, as the weaker or more delicate vessel. I have to dwell with her according to knowledge. That means I have to understand her, I have to know her. I've got to recognize what she likes, what she doesn't like, what she needs, what she maybe doesn't need, what's good for her, what's not good for her. I have to figure that all out based on knowledge, and then I have to honor her and meet her needs. Not only must I honor her, but I must appreciate her. I must not only appreciate her, But as Paul said, I must esteem her. I must exalt her above myself. That's what Jesus did. That's what Agape does. And we all have people that hate us. Hate us maybe because of the very beliefs and the practices that we engage here uh, in at this church. But those folks need our care. They need to be taught the truth. They may have physical needs, and and we need to supply those things. Now, brethren, when you get to this point, when you reach this point where you love your wife, Agape, where you love her as Christ loved you, And where you love her as you love yourself, and you will nourish and cherish her as you nourish and cherish yourself. When you reach that point, now you're ready to become the head of your wife. You're ready now to take charge. And until that foundation is laid, you cannot properly be the head of your wife and the head of your family. Because you're going to mistreat her, or you're going to mistreat your children. You're going to make decisions in your own interest, without consideration of her. And that's not going to be the head of the wife, as God designed it, and as Christ has taught it. Now, as we said at the beginning of this study tonight, Institutions whether it's a government, whether it's some community out here, whether it's the family relationship. Institutions will rise and fall based upon their leadership. And if husbands are selfish and devoted only to what they like and what they want, and they make their wives second and their children third, or the children second and their wife third, When they do not exalt the wife, when they do not exalt the children, then indeed, they're not going to take charge of this family in agape. They're not going to take charge of this family in love. Now, as the leader of this family, as the head of this family, you're going to have to make decisions. And you're going to have to be like Joshua. You're going to have to always choose this day whom you will serve, whom your family will serve. But as me and my family, Joshua said, we will serve Jehovah. You're going to have to like Abraham in Genesis 18 verse 19. You're going to lead your family in paths of righteousness. You're going to have to give direction An understanding of the right way to go and the right way to live. And when you decide that right way, you have to give direction and guidance to your family. And so it's important, as God lays down, for example, the qualifications of a man to be an elder. It's important for a man to understand that he must rule well his own house. And ruling well our own house means, number one, that we have to love our wives and love our children. We have to be devoted to them above ourselves. Secondly, we have to honor them. We have to exalt them in our hearts and in our minds. Thirdly, we've got to listen to them. We've got to pay attention. We've got to understand what their needs are. We've got to understand what hurts them. We've got to understand what's good for them. We got to understand the things that they appreciate. And when we learn to honor and love and provide and listen, then we can become the leaders of our family. We can give them direction and we can fulfill our role to our wives. We can fulfill our role to them sexually. Only if we love them. Only if we're devoted to their well-being and to their needs, can we fulfill the relationship to our wives sexually in a way that brings out our devotion and our commitment to her needs. And we have to meet her needs emotionally. And sometimes when we are, if we're not careful we will tend to use our wives and use their bodies at times when it is emotionally draining to them and when it's destructive and harmful to their emotional well-being. And we've got to think of those needs not only sexually, but what is the emotional state of the wife? Even though I may have certain urges at this time, if it's going to affect and harm her emotionally, I've got to get control of myself. And a wife needs a husband socially. We talked a little bit about that last night, about companionship. And a wife does not, after disciplining children, dealing with their... Problems and they're crying and so forth. When she gets those kids to bed at night, she doesn't want a husband sitting over in a chair somewhere where she's trying to talk with him about her day and about the problems of the children. He said, uh, 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 grunts a little bit, and does not socially open up and talk with his wife about the family and about their needs. Economically, a man has to take charge. These are areas. Sexually, emotionally, socially, economically. These are areas that leaders have to be well aware of and take charge of if the family relationship is going to function as God designed it to be. And so, unselfish direction and guidance is the kind of leadership that a family needs. And we must devote ourselves to God, and what God has designed for the family to be, and then to take charge and see that our families are taught. And we'll talk about this more with the uh, fathers and mothers and the, the relationship of training children, but we have to give guidance and direction and leadership, first of all, to our wives spiritually in directing them and ourselves The devotion and commitment and the service in God's kingdom. Jesus Christ was crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And He must be the King and He must be the Lord of our personal lives as men, but as our leadership in the family, seeking to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and in the ways of God to direct our families spiritually As well as in all these other ways. And so, husbands, we would say to you tonight, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love your wives even as you love your own body and nourish and cherish it. And then, you can be the leader. You can be the head of the wife. You can be the head of the family. You can take charge. You can take control. And you'll know that you're leading your family in the ways of righteousness and in the ways of truth. This is very foundational to what God designed and what God planned for the family to be. Now we need to talk about women and wives. We need to talk about them being in subjection. And I know in modern times that that word is somewhat offensive. We hope in our study at the Bible class hour in the morning, we hope to help you understand that subjection is not an offensive term. That subjection is not a term that should offend you. And we'll see and understand what that involves in our study at the morning hour, the worship of the Bible class hour in the morning. But I thank you so much for your presence tonight. And I hope that... What we've talked about will challenge you as much as it did me when I first made these studies and when I've sought from making these studies to to fulfill this. And and I understand it's it's an ongoing thing as we seek to grow and develop uh, this kind of love and this kind of commitment, this kind of devotion to our wives and to our children. And it brings out the very deepest of spirituality in the heart and in the soul of every man to be able to love our wives and our children as Christ loved the church and as we love our own bodies. May God bless us all to devote ourselves to these very sacred principles so that our marriage will not be one of those that will indeed, as so many do, end in the divorce court someday. There's no way that if men take charge in the way that the Bible describes it, there's no way that your marriage can possibly end in the divorce court. Women will indeed relish and submit to this kind of man, this kind of husband, and we need to devote ourselves to these very basic principles. But If you're here tonight, we wouldn't want to close this service without urging you to become a child of God. And learn to love God as Jesus and God has loved you and as God gave his Son and as Jesus gave his life that you might be saved. Would you not have that devotion and that commitment to God and confess that Jesus is the Lord and is the Christ? And repent and turn from sin and ungodliness and worldliness and that repentance? Confess your faith in Jesus and be baptized. Be buried with Him in baptism and arise to walk in newness of life. Or if as a husband or as a member of this church you've been unfaithful to your relationship in your family or to God and you feel like you need to acknowledge in a public way your repentance, your sorrow for all of that, your devotion to serving God again and make confession, we'll pray with you, pray for you. If you need in any way to respond to the invitation in a public way, we urge you to come while we stand and sing this hymn that's been selected.